Last week, David began a series in what are called the Ascent Psalms, and I would like to continue that uh, series with you this morning. We're going to look at Psalm 121, so if you want to find your way there, this would be a good time to do it. Psalms 120 through 134 are the psalms that are referred to as the Ascent Psalms. If you look at the title of Psalm 121, you'll see that that bears the same title, a song of ascents, a song for the ascent, a song for the, for the going up. The reason these were called Psalms of Ascent or Songs of Ascent is that these were the psalms that were sung by the Israelites as they traveled to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the highest point of elevation in Palestine, so no matter uh, where you left from to go to Jerusalem, you always went up. So these were songs for the going up, for the travel up to the city of Jerusalem. They were called songs of ascent for that reason. Three times a year, all the Jewish males were required to go to Jerusalem for the three great festivals in the uh, Jewish sacred calendar, the festival of Passover in early April, Pentecost in early June, and then the Feast of Tabernacles in mid-October. And so these were songs that were written and sung to relieve the tedium and the boredom of that uh, journey. This was their version of 99 bottles of beer on the wall. <laughs> a little more uh, constructive, but the same uh, basic idea. Now, as David pointed out last week, our ascent, we're on a, an ascent as well, a journey upward. However, ours is not a physical one to a physical city, but ours is a pilgrimage to the uh, what the writer of Hebrews calls the eternal city whose founder and builder is God. Uh, and we are pilgrims. It's always helpful to uh, remember that, that this is not our home. Our citizenship is in an unseen kingdom, not an earthly, uh, tangible kingdom. That's where our citizenship lies, and that's our uh, destination. Uh, when Jim and David and I were in Suriname, we uh, enjoyed our stay there, but for every day of, the, of those two weeks, we were aware that this was not our home, that uh, we were just passing through. And uh, when our visit was over, we'd be, go be going home. And that's the perspective of the scriptures on our walk uh, today, our contemporary walk as a pilgrimage. It's a sojourn. We're not home yet. This isn't our, uh, our home. And these songs are, are for our benefit as New Testament believers as we make this pilgrimage onward and upward to ever-increasing Christ-likeness as we grow toward maturity, uh, toward godliness. These are songs to assist us in that pilgrimage, to assist us in that, in that walk. One of my daughter's favorite stories is a story about uh, Winnie the Pooh. You're familiar with the uh, basic plot of that uh, gripping drama. Um, <laughs> Pooh is doing his uh, stoutness exercises one day and gets very hungry as a result, and his own honey jar is empty, so he walks through the 100-acre uh, wood looking for somebody to catch a free lunch off of and uh, goes to Rabbit's Burrow, and as you remember, he calls into the burrow, Is anybody home? And Rabbit made the mistake of saying, no, nobody home. And it took Pooh a while, but he finally figured out that something was wrong and managed to get himself invited in for free lunch. And he stuffed himself on uh, Rabbit's uh, honey and bread and so forth. And uh, after he had finished, he decided it was time to leave, only he couldn't. He got stuck in the hole on the way out of the burrow, and there he was. And all of his friends gathered around Rabbit and uh, Piglet and Eeyore and so forth and tried to figure out how to get him out of this fix, and they couldn't. They finally decided they'd just have to wait until he got thin. 
But instead of leaving and going home, they stuck around. And as the rain fell and the night fell and the chill came, they gathered around Pooh, half in and half out of the hole, and sang him uh, what the writer calls sustaining songs. And that's the way I look at these ascent psalms. They're sustaining songs. Uh, we're not out of the woods yet. We're uh, not unstuck. And these are songs to keep up our courage and our faith and our hope as we continue our journey. Now, in the first verse in Psalm 121, the psalmist presents us with the problem that faced the uh, pilgrims. He says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From whence shall my help come? Now, that's clearly a question, the second half of the verse. The King James has obscured this a bit, I believe, by translating this as if it were a statement. The way the King James translates it, I will lift my eyes to the mountains from where my help comes as if the mountains were the source of the traveler's uh, help. But it's clearly a question in the original. And what uh, the psalmist is doing is picturing a, an Israelite preparing to set out for the holy city. And as he leaves the village, he lifts his eyes up and he sees the mountains that he will have to traverse to reach his destination. And he realizes that there is great danger, that this is treacherous terrain. It's dangerous uh, there are dangers from the heat of the sun and the cold of the night and uh, wild animals and robbers and brigands who are out to take advantage of defenseless travelers. And so as he sets out on this pilgrimage, he looks to the mountains and asks himself the very uh, good question, from whence does my help come? Where does my help come to navigate this terrain? Who will see me through these ravines and gorges and uh, treacherous mountain passes so that I safely reach my destination. Where will my assistance and, and help come from for this journey? And I think it's, uh, it's clear to us that uh, what the psalmist was dealing with here was a feeling of insecurity and fear. There were obstacles that lay ahead of him that created in him a sense of, of insecurity and fear as he, as he faced them. And it's not hard for us to look around and find items in our own experience that create the same kind of uncertainty. I was reading an article this last week about a, a course that's being offered right now at my alma mater, one of the most popular courses on campus, and it deals with uh, the nuclear arms race. And part of the required reading for this course is an article which is kept on file in the library, and they go and check it out and read it on reserve. And the article consists of a number of uh, leaders, military leaders and scholars and so forth, sitting in a roundtable discussion, uh, discussing the situation under which it would be appropriate for the United States to engage in nuclear war. Under what conditions would it be relatively safe uh, to do so? And you realize as you read the article that it's, uh, it, there's a note of insanity about this. You know, this is a perfectly appropriate and legitimate thing to do. Somebody needs to engage in these discussions. But you realize that they're talking about the end of the world and talking about it very calmly and dispassionately. And one of the students had written in the margin as he read the, uh, this, this article, and uh, his alarm grew. He read. Uh, he wrote in the little graffiti in the margin that said, "Who votes that we give these men frontal lobotomies?" <laughs> and then he had uh, worked up a little makeshift ballot there, and so students, as they read it, would vote yes or no. <laughs> and another student came along as he read the same article. He got to that point, saw the graffiti, uh, and said, uh, wrote another note underneath. It says, "I'm sorry, uh, you're too late. They've obviously already had them." <laughs> uh, 
<clears throat> but if you stop for a minute and think about the fact that uh, our our civilization our civilization could go up in a flash if somebody pushed uh, a button uh, at the wrong time, you realize there's good reason objectively to feel somewhat insecure about our circumstances. And to get down a little closer to home, I also read this last week that uh, consumer credit over this last year has gone right through the ceiling. Uh, and right now, you and I, individual consumers, owe more money than the government and corporations combined. We are the biggest debtors in this uh, country. And maybe you, as uh, we have in our family, have fallen prey to the easy credit that's being offered, and you've painted yourself into a bit of a corner, and you're looking at perhaps years to dig yourself out from under this uh, rock slide. And you, too, are, are feeling a sense of insecurity about this. Who's going to navigate me through these uh, treacherous waters and help me to, to say no and get my affairs in order? Well, if you're feeling any of that sort of insecurity and uncertainty this morning, then I believe this psalm has a word for you. Now, the psalmist answers his question in verse 2 immediately. He says, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. As the psalmist starts out on this journey, he says, The one who helps me, the one who assists me, who strengthens me, who enables me for this walk before me is the Lord, the one who made the heavens and the earth. As you're aware, the word Lord, the name of God in the Old Testament, his personal name, comes from the Hebrew verb uh, to be. And literally, the name Yahweh means the one who is. And I believe God chose this name for himself so that we could uh, uh, fill in the blanks following his name. Whatever we need, we fill in that blank, and the Lord says, I'm the one who is everything you need. That's what the psalmist is recognizing here. The Lord says to us, Yahweh says to us, I am the one who is love when you're feeling hateful and spiteful and vengeful. And I am the one who is peace when you're feeling troubled and anxious and worried. And I am the one who is joy when you are feeling discouraged and depressed. And I am the one who is uh, patience when you are feeling stressed out and impatient. And I am the one who is self-control when you need to resist a temptation and learn to say no. I am everything that you need for the trail. And that's the ringing declaration of the psalmist in verse 2. The Lord is the one who is his help. Then he adds the descriptive phrase that the Lord is the one who made the heavens and the earth. And this is not some kind of uh, throwaway line. The psalmist didn't get to this point and said, oops, I got one half of the verse. Now I've got to put some filler in for the second half of the verse. Now he says, the one who helps me, who is my individual source of help, is the one who made the heavens and the earth. In other words, the same God who uh, flung the galaxies across billions of light years of space, the God who hung the stars and the sun and the moon into place and created the grandeur of the sawtooths and the Rockies and the Tetons, the psalmist says that same God is my help. The same power that brought the universe into being is the same power that stands available uh, to me to assist me. And to strengthen me. That's one of the tragedies, really, of the theory of evolution, is that it's taken away this whole dimension of our understanding of the created, created world. Is that the created world is not there just to create in us a sense of wonder and a sense of awe, although it certainly does that and should do that. But every time we are impressed with the beauty of creation, 
God intends for that to be a visible, a visual reminder to us that that power that brought that into existence is available to us, available to help us. And that is the psalmist's declaration. His help for the journey, for the treacherous terrain ahead, comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Now in verses 3 through 6, the writer gives us three uh, pictures to describe the kind of help that we receive from the Lord. Verse 3, He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. Now notice he's changed from the first person in verse 2 to the second person. My help in verse 2, he will not allow your foot to slip in verse 3. Now this could be some kind of responsive song, sung by the caravan, the travelers as they went up. But I rather think that the psalmist is recording for us the inner dialogue that is to take place, that uh, he is reminding himself of these truths, speaking to his own soul, to his own heart. We need to do that periodically. We need to be reminded by others of these truths, and we need to remind others of these truths, but it's also true at the same time that we need to remind ourselves and speak to our own hearts about these truths, and that's what the psalmist is doing. Now, the first picture he paints for us of the kind of help that the Lord gives is that he is an experienced trail guide. He is the one who will not allow your foot to slip. He's walked these trails before, and he's able to protect you as you uh, traverse them. As the travelers would set out, they would realize that in the ravines and gorges of these mountains, there would be a number of very narrow and dangerous trails in which uh, injury and death were a, an ever-present possibility. And the psalmist is saying, the one who, who guides my feet along these uh, narrow paths is the Lord himself. He is the one who does not allow my foot to slip. Uh, he's the one that watches over me and protects me and keeps me on track and keeps me from drifting off the trail to the right uh, or to the left, who keeps me from getting lost and buying into the deception that would get me, get me off track. One of the men in our Wednesday morning study pointed out that uh, in verse 2, the psalmist is talking about the expanse of the universe, the one who made the heavens and the earth. And then it's as if the camera in the very next verse pans down to the very foot of the traveler uh, and says the one who made the heavens and the earth is also the one who is concerned about the very next step that you take on the, on the trail. And he's the one who is pledged to keep us on track, not allow our foot to slip. Debbie and I have two uh, young children, three and a half and one and a half, and we have uh, been much in prayer and discussion together about how to raise these children. We know uh, most of the theory uh, from Ephesians 6, 4, that as parents were not to overcorrect them or to undercorrect them, that that's the balance we're to preserve as parents. But the real trick is doing that, uh, putting that theory into practice. And all of you who are parents are aware of this, the struggle. And this has been a helpful reminder to me that the one who will not allow our foot to slip, who will enable us to keep on track and walk that, uh, that middle, middle line, is the Lord himself. He's the one that will not allow our foot to slip. He will sustain us in this task. 
Perhaps you've heard the story about the believer who stands before the Lord, and together they are reviewing his life. And uh, uh, he sees the, the footprints across the sand of his life, and uh, most of the journey there are two sets of footprints. And as the believer looks back, he sees that those were the times when the Lord was his companion and walked with him through life. But then he sees that there were points in, in his life where there was only one set of prints. And he also recognizes that these were the most difficult times of his life. And he immediately complains about this to the Lord and says, Lord, where were you when I needed you? You were my companion and my friend in the good times, but you abandoned me when the going was the roughest. And the Lord uh, quietly puts his uh, hand on the arm of, of the believer and says, uh, My child, those were the times that I carried you. That's why there was only one set of prints, because I carried you through those times. And that's what the psalmist is saying to us. He's the one who lifts us up, who will not allow our foot to slip. Now, the second picture he paints for us is in the second half of verse 3 through uh, verse 4. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The key word here, obviously, is the verb to keep. He who keeps you will not slumber. This verb means to guard or to protect or to watch for, uh, to save, to look out for. It's the basic idea. This is the verb that Cain used in Genesis 4.10 when he says to the Lord, Am I my brother's keeper? Uh, am I the one who's responsible to watch out for him and keep track of him 24 hours a day and always know where he is? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I his guardian? Of course, you realize since Darwin uh, that the monkeys in the zoo have been saying, am I my keeper's brother? Kind of turned that around. But uh, at any rate, one uh, Hebrew scholar has suggested that the best way to translate this verb is that the Lord is the guardian of Israel. Now, a guardian is someone whose job it is to watch out for our rights, to protect our interests, and to... Uh, protect our welfare and to constantly be on the lookout for what is best for us and to protect us from that which would harm us and uh, destroy us. Even the movie rating system recognizes this. An R-rated movie is someone that a child who is under the age of 17 cannot go to unless they're accompanied by a parent or guardian. Guardian is someone there who, who is there to protect the interest of the child and to guard the child and to protect it. And that's what the psalmist is saying about the, about the Lord, that he is our guardian. He is the one who is constantly watching out for our interests and protecting our rights and looking out for us uh, to defend us, that we uh, do not need to become anxious and fretful. We don't need to become aggressive and self-assertive to watch out for our own rights because there's someone else who is doing that for us. Now, he says about the Lord that he neither slumbers nor sleeps in this business of watching the traveler. Now, as these pilgrims would make their way to Jerusalem, they would often have to uh, camp out unprotected without the protection of the walled city. And they would be prey then to wild animals and prey to brigands and robbers who would take advantage of their defenseless condition to plunder them. And so it was important that they have sentries posted uh, who would not slumber and would not sleep to warn them if there was any danger and to protect them from that kind of danger. 
And the Lord says, the, the psalmist says, the Lord is like that for us. He's a guardian who is always on the job, 24 hours a day. He never dozes, never gets drowsy, never falls asleep at the switch, never becomes inattentive uh, to our needs. Alexander the Great, uh, the, the great conqueror of the world, had a trusted bodyguard whose name was Parmenio. And one time he was asked how he could sleep so peacefully in the, in the midst of such great danger. And he said, well, simply, he said, simply, Parmenio is watching, and therefore I can sleep. I read a story this past week of a, of a woman, a widow, who lived in an Eastern culture a number of years ago, who uh, was part of a tribal people that were protected by the sultan. And uh, she went to him one day to get compensation for some property that she'd lost in a theft. And she went in to explain what had happened. And the sultan said, well, what, what caused you to lose all of your goods? And she said, well, I, I fell asleep. And a robber came into my home and took everything. And the sultan says to her, well, why did you uh, fall asleep? And evidently she was a spunky uh, old woman. And she said, well, I fell asleep because I thought you were awake. Uh, I thought you were watching out for me. And that's why I slept. And he was very delighted with her response and gave her what she asked for. But what the psalmist is telling us here is that the Lord is someone who's always, uh, who's always at his post, who's always watching out for us, always uh, protecting us. And I think uh, this is what enables us, by the way, to be bold and courageous and to take risks. I've got a good friend of mine who just this past week was fired. He lost his job. Because he took a stand for righteousness and, and for truth and for the Lord. Not belligerently, not assertively, but gently and quietly and yet firmly took a stand for the truth and obedience that he knew would cost him his job. Well, the only reason he could take that sort of stand is that he knew that the Lord was his protector and that even if he lost his job, the Lord would guard him and protect him. It's the only answer to fear that, uh, that we can find. I've been uh, appalled at the reluctance of a number of uh, church leaders to, and, and churches to, to uh, exercise church discipline, to go through the, the procedure in Matthew 18, which is designed to redeem uh, sinners and to protect the purity of the body. And the reason most of them don't is they're just afraid of the consequences of obedience, of the kind of notoriety the church might receive, the kind of lawsuits that might be filed, against them, the kind of risk that they would run to obey. Well, the only way you can do that is if you are convinced that the Lord is your protector and that he will guard you, protect your interest, and your welfare. Now, the third picture that the psalmist uses is in verses 5 and 6. It says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. So the third picture is that the Lord is a steady shade uh, for the believers as they travel. As they were traveling from north to south toward the city of Jerusalem, on the hottest part of the day, the sun would be on their right. It would be sinking in the west, which was to their right. And that would be the hottest part of the day when there was the greatest danger from heat, prostration, and exhaustion. And the psalmist says, the Lord is the one who is your shade, who protects you, will protect you from, from the heat. And he also says that uh, he will protect you from the moon uh, by night. Uh, moon rays even can damage uh, the eyesight on the night of a bright moon without protection. 
And these peoples believe that the phases of the moon could affect your psychological condition. There even seems to be some support for that in current uh, criminal studies, correlating phases of the moon with criminal behavior and so forth. But uh, the word lunatic even, the Latin word uh, lunatic, comes from uh, the word lunar, moon, these people who have been crazed by the moon. And so these travelers, the assurance that they would be protected from whatever dangers the night held was that the Lord was their shade. And the point of this is that the Lord is the one who protects them in the day and protects them in the night. I have used the Book of Common Prayer some in my own devotional life. And one of the morning prayers uh, caught my attention because it, it seems so unusual. In this morning prayer, you're instructed to thank God for his preservation of you from the dangers of this past night. And that never made a lot of sense to me because it seemed that at night was the time when I was most secure. Deadbolts were thrown, the windows were locked, the uh, police were on duty, and it seemed like a time of great security. It was right about that time that I began to read about sudden infant death syndrome. And Jana was just about a year, year and a half at that stage, right at the prime time to be a victim of that, of that disease. And so that prayer began to take on new meaning for me, that the Lord is the one who was protecting my little uh, baby girl during the night. He's watching out for her from the dangers of the night. Yesterday I was taking my son for a ride in our uh, chariot, little device you pull behind the bike, and I was speeding down Eustick, uh, and the hitch came loose. And uh, there I was riding along, and J.D. was on his own. And Eustick uh, and is a busy street, and uh, the chariot easily could have swerved into the street or tipped over in the other direction, or he could have pitched forward on his uh, head. And yet he just kind of glided uh, straight down the, the uh, side strip there to, uh, to a safe uh, halt. A little startled, uh, but uh, safe. Uh, and it struck me again that the Lord is the one who's watching out uh, for us by the day, from the dangers of the day, and from the dangers of the night. He's on guard. He doesn't slumber, nor does he sleep. Now, all believers die eventually, and you ask yourself the question, well, if the Lord is protecting, what happens when a believer uh, dies, perhaps, in some kind of accident? Well, the Lord's protection hasn't ceased. There's no uh, sort of gap in his protection. He's just decided to take that saint home to be with him. That's not a lapse in protection. That's his summons to bring that saint home to himself. So the Lord is the one who guards us and makes us immortal until our work on this earth is done. Now, just in case uh, the psalmist has missed anything by these pictures of the trail guide and the watchful sentry or guardian and the steady shade. In verses 7 and 8, he gives a comprehensive declaration of the Lord's uh, protection. It says, The Lord will protect you, literally will keep you, there's our key verb again, will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard, literally keep, your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. It says in verse 8, the Lord is the one who keeps your going out and your coming in. As the travelers prepared to leave the village, they would realize that they were exposed and vulnerable from the moment they left the protection of the walled village until they returned. And the psalmist is declaring that all of that time, whatever they're doing and all their daily affairs when they're unprotected, seemingly, the Lord is the one who is guarding and protecting. And he says it's from this time forth uh, forever. 
from 11.50 on Sunday morning, July 14th, for the rest of eternity, the Lord is the one who is protecting. So the psalmist says, He is the one who guards us whatever we are doing, whenever we are doing it. Now you may be aware of a problem in verse 7, where the psalmist says, The Lord will protect you from all evil. And it appears as if the psalmist is saying to us that God does not let anything go wrong in the life of a believer. doesn't allow any adversity or reversal of fortunes to come into the life of a believer. The Lord will protect you from all evil. That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? And yet we know that that can't be true. There are many other psalms in the same section of the scripture that were written by believers in times of great adversity and stress and suffering. And we know this is not true from our own experience, that we know that believers aren't protected from any of the adversity that besets other people. Christians uh, get divorced, uh, go bankrupt, lose jobs, uh, lose children to death. happens to believers just like it happens to to unbelievers. What is it that the psalmist means then when he says that the Lord will protect you from all evil? Well, I think there's help for us in understanding the nature of Hebrew poetry. There's a feature of Hebrew poetry called parallelism. And what the poet will do is express a thought in the first half of a verse, and in the second half of the verse, he will restate the same idea in other words. That's called synonymous parallelism. It says the same thing twice in two different ways so that the ideas reinforce and explain and clarify one another. We were down in uh, Suriname, we taught on the Psalms, and one morning I got up and Claude was translating for me, and I said, okay, this morning we're going to talk about synonymous parallelism. And there was this moment of silence, and uh, Claude looked at me and says, they do not have a word for parallelism in trio. (laughs) So we had to back up and hit that one again. But uh, that's a, a key feature of Hebrew poetry, and I think that really helps us understand what the psalmist is talking about here. It says, the Lord will protect you from all evil. He will guard or protect your soul. That is your inner man, the real you, the essential you, your inner life. That is what God is committed to protect. So that the things that damage the body, the things that affect our external circumstances, do not also destroy the real us, the inner man within This is the Hebrew and the New Testament concept of of life, that our bodies are like uh, earth suits that God has given to us to navigate this environment. But one day this one's going to be destroyed and we're going to be given a new one in its place. So God is, is not desperately concerned about what happens to the body because this is destined for the junk heap anyway. But the soul is that which lasts and that's what God is above all committed to protect. He is the guardian of the soul. He is committed to keep the the adversity, the external adversity, which plagues all of us, to keep that from destroying the inner man and from wearing us down and and marring our essential humanity. I think this is what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, though our outer man is decaying, literally, though our outer man is being destroyed by the trials and stresses he had just talked about, yet, in contrast, our inner man is being renewed, rejuvenated, made stronger every day, day by day. And then he goes on the next verse and says that momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory. 
at these very pressures and external stresses which are wearing down the body are at the same time, by God's grace, building up the inner man. So he is being made ever newer and more glorious uh, each day. And that's what the psalmist is saying to us, that he is committed to be the guardian of the soul, to sustain us and protect us no matter what kind of external adversity we might encounter. I uh, heard David tell the story once. I always hesitate to use his uh, stories because they happen to him. And uh, when I use one, it makes it tough for him to use it again. And maybe he's already used this one, I don't know. But when he was leaving on a trip once, he prayed with Carolyn before he left and said, Lord, would you please protect uh, Carolyn and the boys while, while I'm away? And Carolyn looked up at him and said, well, who do you think protects us when you're here? <laughs> and, uh, and kind of uh, put him right in his place. Came across another story this past week of a, of a young eight-year-old girl who was traveling with her father and the rest of her family. Her father was an experienced sea captain. They were traveling through the open sea. She was asleep in her bunk, and a sudden squall uh, struck the ship and uh, knocked her out of her bunk and jolted her awake. And, of course, she was terrified, and she said uh, to someone else in the room, what, what happened? And they explained that a sudden squall had struck the ship, and her only question was, is my father on the bridge? And when the answer came back, yes, your father is on the bridge, she hopped right back in her bunk and, and went to sleep because she knew her father would, would take her through the storm. And that, I believe, is the lesson, the great lesson of this psalm, that the Lord is our protector, the one who was on the bridge to see us through the storm. I'd like to take just a minute now and have you close your eyes, if you would, and uh, bow your heads and I want to ask you some of the same questions that I asked myself this week and give you an opportunity in the quiet of your own heart to pray to the Lord who is your protector. So in your own heart, I'd like you to ask uh, this question of yourself. What is it this morning that makes you feel secure? Uh, is it your wealth? Is that what you're depending on for security? Your investments? Your IRA? Your steady job? Is it your spouse who's dependable, faithful? Is that what you're counting on? Well, the psalmist tells us the only real protector we have in life is the Lord. Everything else will let us down. So I'd encourage you to take this moment to renew in your own heart your trust in God as your only real protector in life. Maybe you have no one who is a protector for you. Perhaps you're a single parent and... Have no one to look out for your interest and needs. Watch out for you. Well, the psalmist tells us you do. The Lord is your protector. So if you're in that condition, will you take this opportunity right now to reaffirm your faith in him as your guardian? Perhaps you know that you have, for certain, that you have a very difficult road ahead, that the path before you is very treacherous and dangerous and stressful. Well, the Lord is the one who will not allow your foot to slip. Take this opportunity to reaffirm your trust in him to protect you on the trail. And the last thing I would encourage you to do in the quiet of your own heart is to thank God for his protection of you to this point. We often fail to do that. So take this moment to thank him for protecting not only your body, but more importantly, your soul from what adversity could have done to you. 
Father, we are grateful this morning for the reminder of this psalm that you are our guardian, that you are watching out for us, protecting us, that you're there to defend our rights, to stick up for us, to protect our reputation, protect our inner man. We pray that you would teach us to lean on nothing and no one but you for that protection. Pray that as this week progresses that we will have reason to see your protecting uh, hand at work in our lives and that we can realize in new and genuine ways that you are the guardian uh, of all our ways, the guardian of our soul. We thank you for your availability to us, your life within us that's available to be lived out to handle every pressure that this week will bring. Pray in the name of your Son. Amen.